thank you for tuning in to Liberation Bible Study, the podcast where we read the Bible as a source of inspiration and strength to help you live into God's abundant vision for your life and for the world. Hey y'all, this is Alex, your host of Liberation Bible Study. For today's episode, I am so excited to have with me Aubrey Thonvald, who is Executive Director at Reconciling Works. Today, we will be reading John chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, through the theme of love. Aubrey, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. I'm excited. I am so excited to have you. It is our practice on this show to introduce ourselves our pronouns, our work, and our identities, because we know those always show up whenever we are engaging with these texts. Aubrey, would you introduce yourself further to us? My pleasure. Uh, my name is Aubrey Thonvold. Pronouns are she, her, hers. I am currently serving as the executive director of Reconciling Works. I grew up in rural Minnesota, closer to South Dakota than other things. And then uh, realizing that I was gay in middle school, I was like, I gotta get the heck out of here. <laughs> so I moved out into the Pacific Northwest and I lived there for 15 years and got a, an undergrad degree uh, in youth and family ministry, a master's degree in transforming spirituality, uh, worked on a few marriage campaigns in Washington, Hawaii, and Oregon. So I'm married, I'm white, middle class. I totally get the the lifestyle of rural communities and what that feels like, but I also really thrive in urban settings. I'm an auntie oh, to some of the cutest kids you've ever seen in your whole life. Uh, I'm a quilter and yeah, that's that's good for now probably. Oh, and I've been a lifelong Lutheran. Like, my, I have never not known the church. <laughs> so. Yes. And will you say just one sentence about what Reconciling Works does? Yeah, of course. Uh, Reconciling Works, we are a national nonprofit that partners with the Lutheran Communion to create welcoming spaces that welcome, include, and advocate for uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, asexual folks. Awesome. Thank you. Of course. And I am Alex. My pronouns are he and him, and I serve in my job as executive director at Morelite Presbyterians and live in North Carolina. I'm back in my home state after 15 years of being away in a similar way of coming out at uh, 18 and realizing that in some ways North Carolina was not the state that could hold the fullness of my identities. So I moved to Boston right after undergrad and then D.C. for eight years and then have recently returned and am living in a rural community and getting to experience the smallest town I've ever lived in, even having lived in West Virginia for uh, about six years of my life. And I am a lifelong Presbyterian. I've never not been a Presbyterian, even when when pursuing ordination in the Presbyterian church, when laws were against Presbyterian serving as LGBT people, my own grandfather suggesting I try different denominations that maybe one would be more of a, a welcoming place because he wanted me to be welcomed. He didn't love that the Presbyterian church was doing this. And uh, I realized that 
this denomination is one that is deeply in my bones and one that I've worked most of my career now to help transform. So I'm really excited to dig in to these texts with you, Aubrey, because you and I get to be conversation partners in much of our work, helping to transform um, congregations and denominations because reconciling works and more like it to play together a lot and dreaming up what the church can be. I like it and I love it. <laughs> so would you be willing to read the text, uh, the first go through as we listen for what is going on in this passage um, and what really sparks our curiosity as we hear it? Of course, of course. And who would I be if I wasn't reading from the inclusive um, Bible translation? <laughs> so here we go. So John 3, verses 14 through 21. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the chosen one be lifted up so that everyone who believes in the Chosen One might have eternal life. Yes, God so loved the world as to give the only begotten One, that whoever believes may not die but have eternal life. God sent the only begotten into the world not to condemn the world, but through the only begotten the world might be saved. Whoever believes in the only begotten avoids judgment, but whoever does not believe is judged already for not believing in the name of the only begotten of God. On these grounds is sentence pronounced, that though the light came into the world, people showed they preferred darkness to the light because their deeds were evil. Indeed, people who do wrong hate the light and avoid it for fear that their actions will be exposed. But people who live by the truth come out into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they do is done in God. Thank you. At the end, every time I read scripture at the end, I always want to be like, here ends the reading. <laughs> Holy words, Aubrey. So as you read this passage, what did you notice about the context of it? What is going on in and around this passage? And what stands out to you that you hadn't noticed before? I think the thing that some of the context and content in here that was like surprising to me is like, I know, I know that there is so much Old Testament and New Testament, but to hear it named so clearly as like that reminder of like Moses lifting up the serpent at the very beginning of the conversation, of the beginning of the text, like that is just like such a solid reminder that there is safety in what is coming next. And then the very next thing that comes is that reminder, like, yes, God so loved the world as to give the only begotten one. And then I start thinking about that play and that dynamic of light and darkness and what that means and what it doesn't mean and the limits that that puts on some things. Mm. And then I just start to sit and wonder what and how and if (laughs) 
scripture limits the divine. Mm. Say a little more about that. I really don't think like there was a children's book that I'm so embarrassed. I can't remember the name of, but it talks about how like it wasn't just God living in the light, but it was a, a children's book about the creation and how God was the darkness and God was in the darkness. And to remember that like from the very beginning, God was darkness and hovered over it and was in it. And so to have this idea of pretending, is that the right word to use? Pretending? But I think it is. Like to pretend that God can't be in light and in dark, that God can only be in one place. I think the divine is much bigger than that limitation. Mm. Yes. Because Perhaps for those who are hearing this gospel, the gospel of John for the first time, maybe they hadn't ever considered that God could have a begotten beloved one. Mm. That already this small passage is sharing with us things that we didn't think were possible. And in creating this duality of light and dark, which we know in our American culture has been so twisted as to mean that light is better than darkness, particularly in terms of skin and bodies, which mm-hmm. wholeheartedly reject. That perhaps what we're being invited to consider within this is the deep knowledge that the readers and hearers would have had of God in the darkness, that they can't take that away from those who are hearing it. And here we're then playing with that about those who have have seen the light coming into the world. What does it mean that God is darkness and Jesus is light? Dang. That's juicy. That's like juicy delicious. <laughs> well, because the context of this passage, I mean, just even a few verses beforehand, you see that Nicodemus, who is a Jewish leader, has come to Jesus by night in the darkness and is asking Jesus questions about the teachings that he has been sharing about what does it mean to be reborn even if you're old and basically trying to understand what Jesus is saying. So Jesus is even speaking to someone who has a deep knowledge of God in darkness and does not fear that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just thinking about like when you said that Jesus is light and God is darkness, like that is just pure abundance. Mm. That God gets to be, you know, like how we're always taught like God is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, God is all things. Like to remember that like God is literally so much but God is all things light and dark right which thank you for coming back to that because light physical light when you turn a light on in a dark room does the darkness go away no I think as soon as you turn the light back off it becomes dark again and if we think of God as the darkness the, the thing that hovers over the waters, 
That means God's always there, whether we can see God or not. Jesus is the light because we can see Jesus and those who were in Jesus's time could see Jesus very clearly. And when that light was extinguished and crucified and became something else, a different kind of light, it still didn't take away the fact that the darkness was ever present in all of it. Amen. Even just like think about our own, is it circadian rhythm? How do you say that? Circadian. Yep. That's what I meant. Uh, our own personal rhythms like that of like, when do we rest? We rest in darkness more often than not for folks. And like, it is in that deep, deep sleep and in that darkful rest that like our body does some of the most magical healing and rejuvenating and like recreation in us. And without it, we would perish without that rest in the darkness. This is good. This is real good. (laughs) (laughs) What do you make of the section right after the verse 16, you know, for God to love the world that many of us are familiar with that phrasing. And then in verse 17, it says, God did not send God's beloved into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What does your inclusive Bible say in that? Yeah, it says that God sent the only begotten into the world, not to condemn the world, but that through the only begotten, the world might be saved. How do you (laughs) hold that verse 17 with, for God so loved the world? It's like, God loved the world. God did not send the begotten one to condemn. This is that place where like growing up in rural Minnesota, if you would have asked me this question, you know, when I was 15, 16, even just like right out of high school, I would have had a very different answer for you. And then I went to seminary (laughs) and all of that, like black and whiteness of God, like they totally blew that up. And I have to be reminded constantly, like when I get comfortable in thinking that I can assume that like God gets to be one thing, that the divine is one thing that I've got to remember that in a very Lutheran term, God is both and. So to think that like God gave the divine, gave Jesus not to condemn the world, but so that everyone could have eternal life. I'm like, well, yeah, of course. Why wouldn't that be true for like every human soul? Mm. What would your 16 year old self have answered? Oh my gosh. I would have been like, you have to be a Christian. You have to be baptized. You have to be a firm believer. There has to be some level of repentance in there. And it's not that I don't think that those things have value and that those rituals have a deep spiritual practice for us. But I also believe that God is bigger than our ritual, that the divine lives beyond the boundaries of what we assume with who's in and who's out. 
Mm. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up because this particular text, John 3, 16, was plastered on every Christian t-shirt I ever saw. Mm-hmm. It was everywhere. And I didn't have a very positive association with it. Because growing up as a queer kiddo in a rural area, there was never an assumption that I was part of that, that saving piece. Yeah, I grew up in a church that never outright said, oh, I don't even like saying this word a lot, but like homosexuality is sinful and wrong. But they would say that we pray for those people. And like, what do you do when you're 13, 14, 15? And you know that your church is talking about you while simultaneously, you know, giving you John three sixteen, right? And giving you the scriptures that talk about how God knows every hair on your head, right? That God, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in your mother's womb. Like, what are you supposed to do with that when then at the exact same moment you get the, but we pray for those people? Yeah. When salvation is made to be a weapon against people, cutting down who they know themselves to be, it was not a loving action. And it wasn't even from my own home church, my own community. Again, growing up in a community that didn't talk much about gay people, positively or negatively, that just means we had the negative space to fill in what everyone else was saying at the time. and. So many of my peers had very clear understandings on who was in and who was out in a binary way, as you said, black or white, which again, dichotomizes light and dark. I think to read this text where it says, for God so loved the world that God did not send another beloved, God's child, into the world to condemn. Like, it's a loving action. Yes, it's a sacrifice. And so there's something in there about uh, the sacrifices we also make for the sake of love. Mm. But the salvation then is an act of love, not because it's either hell or not, hell or heaven, but to me it's love or not. What do you think about that? Two things that are coming to my mind is one, to think about if I could have had my adolescent faith be shaped and formed in a safe space where all of me could have been loved. Like I often wonder, ooh, I should have also said in my labels that I'm a crier because I'm feeling myself getting teary-eyed. <laughs> like I often wonder what who I would be now if all of me had been fully loved by my community. But then I know that like, that is something that I get to create through my work that I do now for other people that I get to do um, for myself, because I know that I can own a truth that is mine because the divine has gifted me <laughs> with the, the ability to interpret scripture and to have life experiences and to live embodied. So I think about that. And then I also just think about 
the transformation of love. I was reading a book about gardening the other day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, How plants grow better when you say kind words to them and when you talk to them. And I was was my third grade science experiment, Aubrey. (laughs) Was it really? (laughs) What plant did you grow? (laughs) I don't remember, but I had two plants, one that I read to every night and one that I didn't. And the one that I read to grew. (laughs) But like, think about it. Like if we are trying to say that there is legit an in and out, that there is light and dark, black and white, and what it means to receive the abundant love of God that God gave to the whole world. Like we are forcing people to not live fully because we're not letting them show up in their greatness. We're forcing them to shrink. I've been thinking about that a lot today, not just today, but like for months now about what the church, how the church requires you. And by church, like I know it's hard to put like a broad general sweeping thing, but like in my experience in the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, and how they have forced me to shrink in order to fit through the door mm-hmm. and how they are missing a fuller image of the divine when they don't want my full self to be present and that of other queer bodies. Thank you. To bring it back to the plant <laughs> analogy. Well, there's something in the spokenness. There's something in the words that are used like, I just think about people who grew up in families that didn't say, I love you very much. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that means you have to be left to wonder what does that love look like? What does that love mean? And to be beloved in our fullness, I believe means speaking specifically to the parts of our identities that much of our world does not love to fully help people flourish and feel welcomed into a community, a place, a church, into being who they are in their fullness. That takes words. With the, with a lot of the congregations that we work with, you know, at Reconciling Works, we say, you know, it's important for you to become a Reconciling Christ congregation, and that means that you have to make a specific welcome statement that names certain people. And the, the most pushback that we get is from people saying, well, why would we need to name certain people groups? Won't we be excluding others? And I have to remind them that, like, in order for someone to feel like they're going to receive any level of care or love, you have to be able to see them so you can name them, right? So, like, You've got to see people. You've got to name people in order for you to be able to actually fully care for them. And like sometimes they understand, but sometimes they don't. And I think, you know, there are parts of my world where I have, you know, tremendous privilege as a white person, as a married person, you know, like as a middle class person. But there are moments, too, where like I also am like extremely cisgender, so I don't look gay. I really, like, I even cut, like, 12 inches of my hair off to look more like a lesbian. And it just made me look like a 12-year-old boy instead. Like, it just didn't work. Uh, 
And there are just so many assumptions that people make based off of my external package, right, of who I am. And then they just assume that I'm going to come in and I'm going to fit this certain role. But like, that's not how that works. And that's not how God wants us to be. And I think if we actually truly, truly love people, we're going to let them show up in whoever they are in that day and in that moment. Because my hope and prayer is that people are constantly learning who they are and developing who they are. And that we would never be the same person every single day, but that we would be growing into the fullest version of ourselves daily. Mm-hmm. And saying specifics about who is included, it's more than just lip service. Yeah. As, it, as you were saying, it takes seeing people to be able to name them as fully beloved and fully included rather than a vague generality. Oh yes, all are welcome. And God uses specific language over and over again. And in the gospels and the stories of Jesus's work, he goes to specific people over and over again who do not feel loved. Hmm. I wrestle with a conception of salvation, as you were saying, salvation that's exclusive rather than inclusive, who's in, who's out. But in the verse 18, those who believe in the beloved one are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the the mind says only son of god Mm -hmm. and i don't always know what to make of that i remember having conversations with my mom about this when i was really little because i was hardcore church nerd and i remember people saying like well if you don't know who jesus is then you're not saved and you're going to go to hell and i remember like my heart like being so scared for people who like had never had a chance to hear about Jesus before. So like maybe not only like people in my town, but I was like, you know, small rural seven-year-old brain had this concept of like, but what about those people that missionary haven't missionaries haven't gotten to yet? Like, what about them? Are they saved? Like, and then it was this, like this real deep internal struggle for me to be like, but what if they never get a chance to even hear who Jesus is Would God really not save someone like that? And my mom, being the brilliant theologian she is, in all of her mom greatness, just said, Aubrey, God knows who we all are, and God loves all of us. And I I let it be that for a while, and then I went to seminary, and I was like, I have no answer for this. It has to be either all or nothing in my world post-seminary. It has to be all or nothing. Which then goes right back to my mom's theology of God knows all of us and loves all of us. Yeah. And where I've landed with this, because I was never comfortable with the in or out kind of theology. If you know Jesus, you're in. And if you don't, you're out. Like you were saying. I believe there are many 
ways to find a saving, a life-saving understanding of the world and of love and of connectedness and of a requirement for action and peace and hospitality. I don't think Jesus is the only one at all. But for me, what I've come to see is that the Jesus that I was taught about, the Jesus I came to know, has that, well, okay, here's, here's a story. Growing up, I was so uncomfortable with Jesus. I didn't like him, <laughs> I, have, I have to say. He's, he freaked me out because of this very passage that was plastered on so many of my peers' t-shirts because I felt like Jesus would hate me. And then, you know, I was a deep church nerd. I was at church all the time, many times a week, as many times as I could go. Sundays, youth group, Sunday night. And so it wasn't that I didn't love the church and I didn't love God, but I was so scared of Jesus. And when I was coming out to myself throughout high school, I got even more scared of Jesus because of the messages I'd heard. And then I was standing at a, a youth conference, a Presbyterian youth conference, my last year of attending them every summer. As I was graduating from high school, I'd come out to myself and my parents even. And the week had been a lot about who Jesus was, the, the text we were reading, I think. And I had this moment of realization that if anybody is on my side, if anyone is going to advocate for me, especially in a denomination that had already decided it wasn't going to ordain me as an openly queer person to ministry, that it was going to be Jesus, that he would stand up. You made me a crier, Aubrey. And that's when I realized that I couldn't let the church project an image of Jesus that was here to condemn inadvertently. Uh, can we just drink that in? My adult mature faith, right? Like, which continues to grow and be strengthened and change every day, has really come to understand that, like, if we are not worshiping a God that is nothing but love, then I can't. I'm not buying in. And I'm not dedicating my life to something or someone who would honestly look someone in the eye and say, no, not you. And how profound, Alex, to have that moment and that realization that it's not the church who gives us permission. Yeah. There are so many stories in this Bible of people who loved the system more than the people, who loved the institution more than the people right in front of them. And Jesus calls us over and over again to see the person standing before us, see him standing before us even. And what is saving in that to me is a community of accountability that I can never be so deluded in my own grandeur, so delusional in my own grandeur of, of I know all the answers that 
I would presume to be able to name who is in, who is out, who is good, who is bad. And that I come back to these stories as continual reminders of the bigness of the darkness, of the bigness of the community, that it's never just the people that I agree with. It's never just the people who I say I love, that God is love and therefore God loves everyone. No exceptions. I think about even like when I came out, I was so scared, right? And I waited forever. Like I was out like in my own personal life living in Seattle after high school, but like not out to my family. And like, (laughs) I just remember like hoping and praying with that still like rural Minnesota mindset that like I wouldn't be gay, that I wouldn't be gay. Why would God make me broken on purpose? And I remember reading back through some of my journals. Like, I still have all of my journals because that's what my grandma Tollefson did. And so, like, she was the coolest. So I just wanted to do that. So I would go back through and I read some of my journals sometimes. And I just, the pain in my voice that I can hear, you know, my 19, 20, 21 year old self who, like, really just wants to be the best. Christian that I could be, whatever that meant at that time for me. But knowing that I would never, ever, ever get to be a good Christian because I was a lesbian Christian. And it honestly wasn't until I went to seminary. uh, I went to the School of Theology and Ministry at Seattle University, which is a Jesuit seminary. So in my Catholic seminary, this little queer Lutheran is sitting there And in my liberation theology class, I remember Reverend Dr. Flora Wilson Bridges getting up and teaching that class and talking about liberation. And we started talking about sexuality and sexual orientation. And just, I have never felt like I was going to simultaneously barf and rejoice at the same time, knowing that like, it was totally legit. Like, and I had to wait until I was in my early 20s, my mid-20s to hear that. That I could actually be fully myself because that is who God on purpose made me to be. And then knowing that I grew up in such a small rural town where we're like a fifth generation Donald, where like our whole family has been worshiping in the same place forever and ever. Like we, we take up three pews, we used to. To then realize that like, God loves all of me. So then how do I bring that back to Minnesota and tell my family? Because that was before the ELSDA had decided to let LGBTQ folks be ordained and in partnerships. And it was just this thing of thinking about like this. I was not expecting this conversation, first and foremost, to go this way at all. Because I was thinking about, oh, warm, fuzzy feelings, love. This is going to be so great. I can talk about loving all the time. But I also think that there is like this deep level of pain that exists when love is removed. When love is withheld, like we, it's not only sadness that comes, but it is death that comes. And I think about when I read my old journals, like not only how sad that was, but how little I valued myself because I didn't understand that there was some wholeness to me that there was wholeness at all. And then I think back to our scripture, bring it back around, Thombold, bring it back around. 
coming back to the scripture, like I love, <laughs> like this is so nerdy, right? Uh, in chapter, or in verse 20 and 21, this whole indeed people who are doing wrong hate the light and avoid it for fear their actions will be exposed. But you know what? I will not swear on here, but I almost did. But like, holy, holy moly, that's how I'll swear. I'll say moly. Holy moly, like, is it actually, is it actually in my lens of being a queer person, right, as a lesbian, but like, is it actually that my wrong, my wrongness, <laughs> that I have a fear of that being exposed, or is it that I have a fear of being exposed for fully who I am? Because when I do that, then that means I have to do that for other people. So maybe for me in this moment of my life and in this journey, maybe it's not necessarily that like people love the darkness because they're evil, but it's so much easier to feel like you can hide all of who you are. Because if you know that you can bring all of who you are and it will be loved, that means that you have to make space in your world for other people to bring all of who they are and that you're required to love all of them because it says at the very beginning for God so loved the world and if we are to be God-like here's a commandment to love the world the light and the dark all of it the people that we like and the people that we don't when I do this work I tell people all the time that like I totally understand that not everyone is going to like who I am or even understand my humanity, but I believe that the divine's table is big enough for all of us to be present. It just means that we might not be sitting next to each other. <laughs> well, even in doing this work as a transgender person, a lot of times I'm in rooms with people who want to make room for me as a transgender person, but not other transgender people or non-binary people that don't pass as easily, that make people uncomfortable because they're naming hard truths around in a lack of access to medical care for housing, mental health, that they want to love people they already like. And God loved the fullness of the world, even the hard stuff. Aubrey, I'm wondering if you are ready to move into our second reading around resistance. Uh, yeah. So I have a version of the text in the Common English Bible, which I can read for that. The Common English Bible is a recent translation where scholars got together and attempted to be both faithful to the original Greek and Hebrew language, but also putting it in a way that feels readable and accessible and the lyric poetry of the Bible in its original form. This is John chapter 3 verses 14 through 21 from the Common English Bible. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the human one be lifted up, 
so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. God so loved the world that God gave God's only son so that everyone who believes in him won't perish, but will have eternal life. God didn't send God's son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him isn't judged. Whoever doesn't believe in him is already judged because they don't believe in the name of God's only son. This is the basis for judgment. The light came into the world and people love darkness more than the light for their actions are evil. All who do wicked things hate the light and don't come to the light for fear that their actions will be exposed to the light. Whoever does the truth comes to the light so that it can be seen that their actions were done in God. As we heard this text a second time, how does it call us to the work of resistance? How does it not? You know, like, because all of this is pretty much just saying, attention, everyone. Attention, everyone in the whole wide world. I meant you. I did this for you. And I think about, I don't know if it's been like this for you at Morelite, Alex, but like we have gotten post-election the highest amount in my four years at Reconciling Works. We've got the most hate mail, nasty phone calls, ugly emails telling us that like the work that we're doing is so wrong. (laughs) And how dare we be preaching for LGBTQ people to be included and how dare we blah, 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 blah. I think a couple of years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I would have been like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm offending you. But now I'm at this place where I'm just like, if that's where you're at, like, I'm not mad at you. My heart actually hurts for you. My heart actually hurts for you. Because where is your liberation? In knowing that God is big enough to love me and to love you. And so my resistance has shown up every day knowing that even when people try to come at me and tell me that who I am is broken or sinful or an abomination, that I get to rest in the same assurance that they do in knowing that God chose me and God chose them. And won't it be quite the party when however heaven may or may not be, but when we're all there? Mm. I've been wrestling with verse 19 about people who loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And for all who do evil, hate the light and do not come to the light so their deeds may not be exposed. In the work of resistance, I am reminded how difficult it can be to figure out motivations of people. And one temptation is to ascribe evil actions upon people and condemn them for that. And at the same time, I think there are many people who believe they are doing good deeds 
maybe even sending hate mail is a good deed that I can't let that lie that in speaking to that I am called to continue the work of resistance to make sure that the deeds that are against love are named and given light in a spotlight. When you talked about people doing that from a place of like true and honest care, instead of going to my senior prom, my best friend in high school and I, we decided that we were going to take and write prayers for our friends who are going to be drinking and heaven forbid having sex on prom night. And so we were going to write prayers on all of these wooden stakes. We did it. We prayed over these wooden stakes and then we drove around town and like prayed over them and like put them in the ground. Yeah. Yep. Like even saying it now, it sounds so gross and so weird, but like that is where I was. And that is who the church had told me I needed to be. That that was love. That that was love. That judging people was loving people. Because if I could judge them and just show them how sinful they were, they would be repentant of it and come into the light. That's so gross. But it's so, I mean, thank you for sharing that story because there are so many stories that never get reflection or get reflected upon. There's so many stories of what feels, what someone would say is love that ends up doing so much damage. You know, even in our current presidential administration, I don't know what their motivation is. I don't. I think it's actually just evil. I was going to say, I could guess. (laughs) But you know what I mean? Like, it's not done out of love. So perhaps what I'm looking for from this text in our work of resistance is how can we tell? How can we, like, what is our metric of understanding the actions that people are taking and calling those actions to accountability when they are damaging our communities? When I was living in Oregon, I was working on a marriage campaign and my work was um, funded through an organization called Basic Rights Oregon, who does intersectional work in the most dreamy way I have ever seen a statewide nonprofit, let alone national nonprofit do. So shout out to Basic Rights Oregon. But I just remember being in that space and them training me in how to interrupt moments of oppression. And so how do you not let, you know, microaggressions or passive aggressive comments slide? Because those things are the things that build up microaggressions and passive aggressiveness, like builds up and becomes this huge juggernaut that once it's moving, like you can't stop it. And dare I say that the state of our political world right now is like, a reflection of a lot of people not interrupting a moment of oppression in leaders' lives. And now they feel like they can just freely spew this judgment and hate in a way that like literally takes lives from people. Literally takes lives from people. Yeah. The other thing the other thing that I was thinking about in this idea of like how does the scripture give you permission to be resistant and how do we do that? Um, 
if we go back to the, how we were talking about the difference between light and darkness, and if Jesus is the light and God is the darkness, I think about how often we need to be able to stop and to rest and to be renewed in our resistance. And so to realize that like, it's not that I don't think people are bad, right? So like in this idea of like, there are, there are some people in the world who just do bad things. But then I always think about like, were they taught that way? Were they given a chance to know otherwise? How well were they loved? Nature versus nurture, that sort of thing. But if we let it be in this place where God gets to be darkness and Jesus gets to be light, how often in order for us to be resistant, are we giving ourselves permission to rest? Because it's seen, I think that there's that tendency to see the work as divine and the rest and renewal as selfish. I know that so intimately when you're working your hardest, fighting for your life, fighting for the lives of the people you love, taking a rest feels like you're letting the movement down. You're letting your people down. And if we see God as darkness and Jesus as light and believe in the divinity of both of those things, then rest becomes also divine and of the divine. Because when we are at our maximum, tired, sore, hungry, unable to have some of those basic needs met, especially in movement work. I mean, I really, campaign organizing, not a work-life balance kind of place. And I've seen tension escalate in a room by the very fact that people are deprived of those things, feeling just troubled in their bodies. And then that means your filter for love is just gone. Your filter for seeing that person was trying to love me by offering me X, Y, or Z. That person was offering me feedback even. So I've been at Reconciling Works for four years. And before that, I worked on three marriage campaigns in Washington, Hawaii, and in Oregon, organizing, doing interfaith organizing for the freedom to marry. And like, for there to have been like seven solid years of doing faith-based LGBTQ inclusive work. Like, I am the chubbiest I've ever been. I am the tiredest I've ever been. Like, I have not been taking care of myself. And I started going, um, a friend invited me to be a part of these retreats called Sacred Spaces. Reverend ML Daniel is leading them. She's based out of Seattle, Washington, but she's leading these retreats called Sacred Spaces. And the last one that we did, that we were at, we meet once a quarter for a whole weekend. And she brought in this person named Kathleen Booker, who's a breath practitioner. And I just remember sitting in that space at first being like, what is breathing going to do for me? Like, what will I breathe all the time? If I'm not breathing, I'm dead. So like, what are you going to teach me that's going to make anything different? And I just remember focusing on my breathing, having time with Kathleen and her asking me the question of like, do you work from a place of abundance? She was like the sweetest. And she was like, honey bear, she's like, if you're not working from a place of abundance, like you're not giving people anything. She's like, why would you give them your garbage? And it hit me like a ton of bricks, friend, like a ton of bricks. And I was like, holy crap. 
Like I have been working really hard because one, I am called to this work. Two, I am extremely passionate about this work. Three, it is all about who I am as a person and the people that I love. And like, if I have gotten to a place in my life where I'm trying to work from a cup, that's not, that's not even half full, but it is like dry as a bone. What am I actually getting people when I show up? So I've been really trying to do my best to like fill my cup. So when I do this work, I do this justice work, this liberation work from a place of abundance. So I'm giving people my best fruits, my first fruits to keep it biblical. And it was literally this complete stranger that I had known for like two days who looked at me and was just like, oh, boo-boo, you are tired. And I was like, you don't know me, get away from me. (laughs) But it was so true. I have been so tired and I've been really trying with all of my best intentions to do this work with all of who I am, but like, I'm exhausted. And it's not wrong for me to take time to care for myself. Yeah. And in thinking about breath work, a breath in is as important as a breath out. God is darkness and Jesus is light. The two have to coexist. You have to breathe in and you have to breathe out. And abundance in our work is attuned to the necessity of those cycles and those rhythms and the in and the out because it's the scarcity thinking that comes in to tell us you don't have time to take a rest. You're not important enough to take a rest. You don't deserve to take a rest. And instead we work, 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 prove, 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 try to outrun the clock. And in the end, you're right. We're not giving our best. We're giving, we're just, you know, giving from like a crumpled heap. And I think to the point around the, the hiding, hiding versus showing, I don't think it has to do with light or dark. It's about what you're trying to hide, what you're trying to show. But when you're exhausted, you think you're hiding it, but everyone can see it. Oh, boo-boo. Oh, you so tired. It's an experiential thing. People can see it on you. Not you specifically, but on us. Judge away, Alex. It's fine. We're on Zoom. You can see you what I look like. Breaking mess, Befar. And I think that this scripture gives us a solid reminder that God gave us God's best, knowing that it would be a sacrifice. Right? And so, how are we making sure that when we love people, we're doing it with our best? So one, are we actually taking care of ourselves? Are we actually loving ourselves enough to make space and time for us to be healthy, whole human beings? Mm-hmm. Right? And then how are we loving people at their best? Right. And giving people permission to be their best. Because God so loved the world that God loved God's self enough, if Jesus is of God, that it's always a fluid movement between God and world and God again. And that Holy Spirit gets to come in and be this mystical, magical 
thing that can hold the tension of both hands. Mm-hmm. Right? Like the Holy Spirit gets to be the thing that makes light and darkness one and the same. Let's definitely leave a little room for the Holy Spirit. <laughs> um, are we ready to move into the third section? Yes, of course. Let's take it to liberation, shall we? Heck yeah. Would you read the text again for us? And as we do, we will hold space for the Spirit to illuminate in us what vision for the work of liberation this text offers. So John chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so the chosen one must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in the chosen one might have eternal life. Yes, God so loved the world as to give the only begotten one, that whomever believes may not die but have eternal life. God sent the only begotten one into the world not to condemn the world, but through the only begotten, the world might be saved. Whoever believes in the only begotten avoids judgment, but whoever doesn't believe is judged already, not for believing in the name of the only begotten God. On these grounds, his sentence pronounced that through the light, that though light came into the world, people showed they preferred the darkness to the light because their deeds were evil. Indeed, people who are doing wrong hate the light and avoid it for fear that their actions will be exposed. But people who live by the truth come out into the light so that it may be plainly seen that what they do is done in God. Was there a vision for liberation that you saw as you read? Come out. Come out. No matter who you are, come out. Show up in all of your greatness. And whatever your greatness is, in all of your abundance, come out. Because the world needs to know that all of your greatness, the world needs to plainly see that all of who you are is done in God. And in seeing that, I do think it holds up a mirror to those who are trying to hide. Hide something of themselves, hide something of their beliefs. And in the hate mail that you and so many others receive for being and doing in the world according to their call to justice for all, those who send those hateful messages are having a mirror held up to them that is so uncomfortable, the only action they can take is to write a petty and mean thing. And that's where I think the piece of already judged comes in. And it's not about putting people into bondage, if we're thinking about liberation, but just Mm -hmm. how hard your life must be that that is your expression of yourself is of hate. That Love calls to love, and for those who have been poisoned, who have been in a place of self-loathing, 
that when love calls to them, they have a demon to cast out. And that all we can do is show up fully as who we are and trust that one day they'll be able to look themselves in the mirror. How do we do that, though? Like, how do we honestly move in the world as mirrors for people? How do we live embodied as the divine love? Because if I hadn't had the privilege to be educated through seminary, I don't think that my theology would have allowed me to have this free of a conversation. What it takes to be a mirror is that firm root in, the, in what you know is true, which is this belovedness of God. And that as a mirror, nothing that someone may lob at you will change your, like who you are behind the mirror. You're just showing, hey, this is my truth. I hope that it might be something you could see of me and maybe of yourself. And the way that I've learned to do that is trusting that I'm not the only one in this relationship. That for me, it, I name it God, that is the frame around the mirror that is imbued in me, that I'm helping someone else see my humanity, but also my divinity and the person God has created me to be so that they may know themselves as a creation of God. And particularly for those who have been told and taught a particular binary way of understanding God. And that that means some people are chosen by God, some are not, some are rejected. Because the damage that does, that I've seen, the damage that that does in people is Yes, it can cause them to hate the other, but it really causes them to hate themselves. Hmm. And how can we actually love someone if we can't love ourselves? Like not to quote RuPaul, but (laughs) how the hell are you going to love somebody else if you can't love yourself? So to be a mirror is to fully love yourself. And to not shrink. If the church says, hey, you have to look a certain way, act a certain way, be a certain way in order to fit through this door, to remember that that is absolutely not what the divine has asked you to do or made you to do. Yeah. And nothing can take that away from you or others once you see yourself in that, in that light mm-hmm. as that darkness. Nothing. And that's where there's another scripture that I love that nothing can separate us from God. To me, the thing that can't separate us is God, but it's also our understanding of ourselves and God in relationship. And liberation is often talked about as big movement wide multi-people, all at the same time kind of action. And more and more, I think it's a domino effect of people seeing who they truly are created to be and living that out. Don't hide it, come out. Because 
once you love yourself, you can love everyone else. We, uh, at our home recently, we've been watching Queer Eye, which has been like, I waited, everyone was saying like, oh, it's so good, you should watch it. And so a whole bunch of my straight friends saying it. And I'm like, stop using gay culture as something, some form of your own personal entertainment, you know, and I had my own little hangups about it. But then finally, the other night, I was like, fine, fine, I'm going to watch an episode. And then I proceeded to watch like four episodes and cry through every single one of them because like they are going out to these people in a like Georgia and they're experiencing they're these five gay men who are showing up in all of their greatness and all of their abundance. And they're just showing up to care for these dudes who like maybe need a little help with grooming, dressing, all this kind of stuff. And all of these men, like in the first episodes that I've seen, they all say, you know what, this might, I would have never thought that one, I would have enjoyed your company, two, thought of you a friend, but like they, all of those men, all of them have cried and they've all been like, I actually really love you because people have the courage to be themselves and to be in relationship with someone who might not see them as whole. Yeah. And so much of the work that the queer eye guys are doing is telling these men that they're beloved, that they're pretty, that they deserve to take care of themselves because the message of masculinity for a lot of men is take care of others, not yourself, but to take care of yourself is to be labeled as gay or effeminate or not male. So it's this awful cycle to both deny yourself and then not give yourself any room. And so what I see the queer eye guys offering is a vision of abundance. That you can be a man, a great father, a wonderful partner, and take care of yourself in some very specific ways. It's not just about the product, but it's about the intentionality of taking time to put a little product in your hair or use a nice shampoo, you know. Moisturize. Moisturize for the love of Pete. But that's a vision of abundance to me. It has legit been like one of the most Christ-like things that I have seen in so long and I work in a church like I do church work but watching the show has been like this thing where I'm I'm weeping every show because they are showing up in all their greatness and they're just loving on people just loving on people and by the end of the week there's these dudes who are just like they're transformed and that is what love does that is what it's transformational. It's liberating so that we can be transformed. Mm-hmm. There's a hymn that's been running through my head today that's sung a lot around Easter. One of the lines is, he, Jesus, came down so that we may have love. And that's just it. God loved the world, so God put more love into the world. If we love the world, Our call is to put more love in the world and to know that that too is 
as liberating as any actions we could ever take. That we are an extension of the divine when we love. Yeah. It's not a fluffy love, as we expected to get to talk about all day today. It's not just a simple love. It's a deep and profound, embodied, non-dualistic, non-binary love that's not just, I love you if you do everything I tell you. I love you if you just conform to the person that I think you should be. And this is not just church to us. This is us to our spouses. This is us to our children. This is us to our freaking animals that have been barking this whole podcast. I love you in your fullness. And I see the actions that you take when you take them as in some way motivated by love. Even coming out to name that the actions that were taken in love that hurt me or my communities, I also have to put those into the light as well. Yep. Come out. Be fully yourself. Because love has gone to hell and back for you to be divinely, deliciously you. Aubrey, as we close our practice today, what's something that you want to carry with you from this conversation into the rest of your day or week or into your heart for life? Uh, Mr. McNeil, this conversation is going to live and rattle around in my brain and in my heart for a while moving forward. So thank you for inviting me into it. And moving, breathing, living, loving, moving forward, I think the most authentic way that I embody love is through joy. And so what I'm going to take away from this is to remember but like, I am called to be joyful, right? To be joyful, be joy-filled because I have been given permission, been given permission to on purpose be all of who I am because God did that. And then I get to be all of myself in the light and in the dark. What about you? Yes, this simple, not so simple, simplified text had been flattened in my brain and I did not know what we would get from it. I had no idea, Aubrey. I'm like, if there's anybody to talk about love with, it's got to be Aubrey <laughs> in the passage. And I think what, what I'm taking with me is the beauty of going back to the things we thought we're done. We were done with. This text couldn't have possibly held anything for me. But I wanted to do it anyway because it was part of the lectionary and the abundance of beauty that is there and the wisdom that is waiting for us there. That the darkness is there and that is where God is and that is where we are called to go. Thank you so much for joining me in this profound conversation about a text we all thought we knew. I really so value you and your work and your ability to help us see things that we thought we had illuminated already. 
that you help us see in new ways and you help the congregations and people you work with see in new ways and find new ways to love that are deep and wide and bountiful. It is an absolute joy and delight and pure pleasure knowing that I get to do this work shoulder to shoulder with you. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Liberation Bible Study. We are so glad you joined us, and I hope you found strength for your journey. If this episode got you fired up, be sure to check us out online or on Facebook at More Light Presbyterian, MLP.org. Peace be with you until we meet again. Bye.